Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg, in partnership with JusticeInfo.net. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So Myanmar is back in our sights again this year because the case at the International Court of Justice here in The Hague is about to get interesting again, isn't it? Um, could you do us a quick Stephopedia as to where we are now? Yeah, so we're talking about Gambia-Myanmar genocide case. We saw uh, Aung San Suu Kyi here in The Hague in 2019 at the Provisional Measures Hearing defending uh, Myanmar. The charges are that the, the military crackdown uh, against Rohingya Muslims in 2017, which killed an estimated 10,000 Rohingya Muslims, uh, was actually a genocide. Um, we're now at the stage where the government of Myanmar is contesting the court's jurisdiction and, and saying that they shouldn't be dealing with it at all. We have a lot of issues here because there was a coup in the meantime in Myanmar. It looks like they will probably have a new agent, but the court is not saying anything about who that is. And at the end of this month, we will have actual hearings and we're, we can all see for ourselves who shows up. And that's one of the main points, isn't it? That um, because the military took over, so we've got a junta in place there, there's also a national unity government known as the NUG. And um, they've been contesting already who has the right to represent Myanmar. And they've been doing that at the UN in New York. And we've seen various statements come out about the right to represent Myanmar at the ICJ. Yeah, and that's the trouble. I mean, the ICJ is also the top court of the United Nations and it makes to an extent its own decision, but it's very unclear what guides the court and if there are any kind of rules and regulations in place for them to say who they accept as agents. And uh, when I called the court this morning, actually, they can't even point me to anything. They can't say there are any rules. There seem to be no rules. Uh, they don't want to say who is in the delegation. So we really don't know what we're going to see when, when those hearings start. But I see a lot of um, legal scholars trying to talk about, you know, what the court should do and, and what are precedents and, and what they could do on Twitter. Well, I called uh, Akila Radhakrishnan, who's in New York, and she's one of the people who follows Myanmar closely. She's the president of the Global Justice Center. Close listeners may remember that she was guest on a previous podcast about the interrelation between gender issues and a genocide case. And I asked her from the New York perspective what she knows about what the NUG is trying to argue. Well, I think there's a lot of information about who will be representing that's kind of out there in the media and the public sphere. But the court has yet to comment uh, directly on the issue. And so I think we saw that the NUG actually issued a statement that was reported in the media that they were trying to assert representation at the ICJ. Um, and, you know, I think there's decently held information at this point that the ICJ in terms of the communication has been communicating with the junta. So I think that's going to be one of the open questions is whether or not the ICJ will take any step on this recent request from the NUG for representation and, and what that will entail is a little bit unclear. And it's a little bit unclear as well whether you know the decision in New York in December of 2021 to defer 
a decision on the credentials of the U.N. representative will have any bearing in how the court sees the issue. I'm hearing all these different things. I'm seeing all that stuff come out. I'm seeing other human rights organizations have objections to uh, allegedly that they have accepted a junta agent. We really don't know uh, what is going to happen. Do you think uh, there might be actually a showdown in court? Do you think we might actually see sort of some some argument going on inside the court? I don't think the court would set the scene for two sets of representatives from Myanmar. So I'm not uh, expecting a showdown between, say, the NUG and the junta. And I was wondering what would be the benefit uh, to Gambia for bringing this up. I would assume that Gambia would could be a party that then challenges that this agent has no standing in this court because of the coup or whatever. But I'm wondering, you know, that would probably delay the case for Gambia. So I'm not sure that is for them the best. So I have I have really no idea what's going to happen. So I saw some of that going off that discussion uh, in in Twitter, particularly around the issues of uh, potential delay. Um, I also wondered for myself what attitude the National Unity Government itself has to this specific proceeding. Uh, I mean, we know that previously the majority of people in Myanmar, the Burmese, were kind of solidly behind the previous government were fighting against the allegations of genocide, that there was a lot of denial going on about what the attacks on the Rohingya would actually mean. So this government in exile, I mean, we know that they're in favour of democracy, but do they want accountability or is it more about recognition? So I asked Akilo that. No, it's a little unclear. With the NUG, we've seen... um positive messaging on accountability and the importance of accountability. So, you know, leaving aside the question of whether or not they have the authority to do any of these things, I think they have aimed to take a more progressive stance on accountability, including through submitting um, an Article 12.3 to the ICC going as, you know, going back to the creation of the Rome Statute in trying to assert a role. So I think in a positive way, we could perhaps see this as a continuation or concrete steps for the NUG to be showing that they are committed to accountability for the crimes that have occurred against various ethnic groups against the Rohingya. I think there's also the perspective that seems to align with the fact that there seems to be a very clear two-part goal on behalf of both, I think, the NUG, but also, you know, what the people of Myanmar would like to see at large. One is to not legitimize the junta. So to not have states, multilateral agencies engaging with the junta in a way that legitimizes their role as holding the state of Myanmar. And then I think on the other side, you know, it's not just not legitimizing the junta, but there's also then a proactive push to recognize the NUG as the, you know, as the authority for the country, the the legitimate representative of the people and who have the ability to govern the country. And so I think we're dealing with a couple of different competing perspectives, and it's a little hard to know perhaps which perspective is guiding what we're currently seeing play out. It seems to me that it's probably an intersection of multiple of these goals um, that are trying to play out. But certainly having been engaged in conversations in New York, I do think that the recognition issue is paramount to the NUG. Well, there, Akila goes a lot about, of course, the accountability and that they say they want accountability. But as you pointed out as well, Janet, you know, 
the Myanmar, the Priku Myanmar government also fought these allegations very hard. So uh, it seems also that it it's now become a recognition issue. Uh, while this court case is not something anybody in Myanmar wants. But if we look a bit aside from what is happening at the ICJ, we should also take note that there's other developments worldwide where Myanmar is appearing in other uh, courts. There's a case involving Facebook in the United States, and there's a universal jurisdiction's war crimes case in Argentina. Yeah, plenty to uh, get our teeth into. Start with the Facebook one. Uh, This is Rohingya refugees in both the United Kingdom and the US who are suing Meta, the parent company of Facebook, saying that the social media giant allowed hate speech against them to spread. And they say it, quote, amplified hate speech against the Rohingya people and, quote, failed to invest in moderators that failed to take down posts, delete posts that incited violence and failed to, quote, take appropriate and timely action despite warnings and are looking for more than $150 billion in compensation. That's a lot of money. And to kind of give us an idea and help us through this labyrinth of various developments and help us understand how they are all interconnected, including the ICJ proceedings and the probe of the international investigative mechanism into Myanmar, the IIIM. Uh, we shouldn't forget them. There's so much in this case. Uh, we invited back Priya Palai, international lawyer and friend of the podcast. And we recorded this back in uh, December, which you'll hear in some of her comments. I think, you know, it's good to go back in time a little bit to get a little bit of the context and, and sort of why we're here, you know, uh, looking at this case today. Um, If you look at the fact-finding mission from 2018 and 2019, so this is a group of UN experts, three UN experts who were mandated by the Human Rights Council to look at what was happening in Myanmar to assess the mass atrocities there. In their 2018 report, they actually spent a substantial amount of time on Facebook, on the use of Facebook in spreading... um, you know, virulent material in the use of Facebook that, that disseminated violent material that resulted or that, that caused, uh, you know, the, the atrocities against the Rohingya. And so this um, class action now is sort of a culmination of a lot of discussions over the last few years on the role of social media, on the role of Facebook, on how it was used as an instrument especially between 2012 and 2017, and that it disseminated hate speech and it targeted the Rohingya minority specifically. And as a result of it, you know, the Rohingya were were, uh, displaced, they they had uh, atrocities committed against them, and therefore Facebook needs to be held responsible and liable. So that's sort of the nutshell of this application right now. We've heard this criticism of Facebook, about the moderators, about the algorithm pushing certain inflammatory content that gets more clicks or negative news. But there's a whole lot of problems, I think, around how could you prove a platform legally culpable of that? Are there any, you know, social media is very new. Are there any um, kind of uh, cases you could lean on or any grappling hooks to look at how this case might play out? I mean, I think one comparison, which is, is not, not completely the same in its entirety, but that is helpful, is when you look at the case of Rwanda and you look at the role of radios 
and how they facilitated hate speech in the context of the genocide. You know, RTLM was a, a key sort of um, disseminator of hate speech. And at the end of the day, you had the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, which did try individuals who were associated or who were, who were linked to RTLM. Now, let's look at Facebook right now. What's happening right now is not a criminal case, or it's not a criminal trial. It's, it's a civil application, and it's a, a class action, which basically is a, a legal action on behalf of a large number, a, a, a large group of people. And in this case, again, having looked at the application, it's, you know, Jane Doe, she's not been named. She's sort of representative of a group, of the group of Rohingya who are refugees in the US. And I've only looked at the US application, not at the UK. Um, the argument that they're making is quite simple. They're saying this is a corporation that needs to be held to account. And the argument is essentially that the product that Facebook has is defective in itself, that the algorithms of Facebook are geared towards hate and are geared towards more clicks or more engagement if there's more negative virulent content. And that, of course, Facebook also knew in the context of Myanmar that it didn't have enough moderators. I think they've quoted one or two moderators, you know, despite numerous uh, attempts to draw Facebook's attention to the problem. Also to the fact that, you know, it was uh, essentially a country that had very low digital literacy. And, and I think there's a quote um, in the application which refers to the UN fact-finding mission report, which basically says Facebook was the internet in Myanmar. So with these sort of factors, the argument that is being made is that the cause of action of this application is product liability, that the company is responsible for the product it makes and creates, and that it has been negligent in allowing the dissemination of hate speech and that it could foresee, it was reasonable to foresee the consequences, reasonable to foresee, you know, displacement, death, the targeting of minorities. So that's sort of the essential argument of, of this application. I'm really curious about how this fits with what we saw going on at the International Court of Justice in The Hague, because I do remember there was reference to Facebook there in the Gambian case. And they've been arguing, haven't they, that Facebook had to hand over various documentation to them. I mean, what's the connection between these things? Absolutely correct. Um, in terms of a direct connection, at this point, there is no link between these cases. So let's keep in mind that the International Court of Justice is a separate legal forum. Right now, what we're looking at is an application against Facebook in a court in California. So it's a domestic legal proceeding, two different proceedings. But having said that, the Gambia, which is, you know, arguing before the International Court of Justice, basically wanted Facebook to hand over information and evidence that Facebook has within its remit. So it's got, you know, uh, documentation, it's got posts, it's got a lot of background information that it, that it keeps and it has a repository of information. So the ICJ um, case that has been brought by the Gambia, the Gambia required information from Facebook. So the Gambia then went to a domestic court in the US to ask that court to compel Facebook to produce that information for the Gambia. So different cases, different um, strategies, different things that are required at the end of the case. The Gambia wants information from Facebook. This case, it's to hold Facebook liable. So different distinct proceedings. 
looking at that, do we know, before we turn to that other uh, interesting case in Argentina, do we know where the ICJ is with their proceedings? And do we know if Gambia indeed got uh, some uh, documentation from Facebook? So Facebook has resisted the, um, the, the claim by the Gambia and has sort of fought against the Gambia in court, even on appeal, saying, no, we cannot give you this information. And the last that I've heard, that is still the position. And I don't think Facebook has said that it would give the Gambia some information, sort of a, a, a more conciliatory approach. But in court, it's resisting it because I suppose it opens a legal precedent where, you know, somebody else might come and try to compel Facebook. So I think it's a slightly different strategy that they're using. I do understand that they've said they have shared some information with the independent mechanism as well as the Gambia, but that's not something that I can, you know, verify or speak to independently. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's where we're at right now in terms of, of Facebook's approach to the ICJ case. Now, there is a universal jurisdiction case ongoing in Argentina where they allege war crimes and it's brought by Rohingya women now based in Bangladesh and they testified remotely in Argentina. But a judge apparently ruled that their case could overlap with ICJ and possible ICC proceedings. Uh, she said that the universal jurisdiction should kind of ha take a step back and not to cause confusion and waste resources because Myanmar is a long way away. But the appeals court has said that an investigation can go ahead. Um, the first major question is, you know, even though it is uh, universal jurisdiction, it could be anywhere, it still usually has some kind of link. So why Argentina? Well, I think it's a, it's a few factors. One is Argentina has traditionally been receptive to claims, for example, linked to atrocities in Spain, you know, uh, the last few years, uh, Pinochet. There have been a lot of cases in Argentina that have garnered a lot of attention linked to universal jurisdiction. And I think given the history that Argentina has had, there is a legal framework around impunity and there's a legal framework around accountability, including universal jurisdiction. Now, as you correctly said, Stephanie, universal jurisdiction, pure per se, is you know, can be exercised without a link. So not necessarily with a, a link to a person uh, on the territory of the state or a victim on the territory of the state. So it's really a form of exercise of jurisdiction, which is linked to the gravity of the crimes and linked to the fact that international crimes have been committed. Now, with that, the other factor, of course, is that You know, the uh, organization that has been spearheading this, Burmese Rohingya organization, UK Brook, um, is also working with someone who is a lawyer within the Argentine system and who also was a special rapporteur for Myanmar. So, you know, Thomas Quintana has an intimate knowledge of what's happening in Myanmar and understands the context and, and you know, also understands the Argentine legal system. So I think it's a mix of different factors coming together, but also essentially the receptivity of the jurisdiction to allow cases like this to move forward. And, you know, as we've seen a few days ago, the Argentine federal court has essentially now given a green light and said, yes, this is something that needs to move forward. As you pointed out, there are six survivors of sexual and gender based violence who have given testimony in the course of this chamber making its decision. They actually gave testimony to the chamber. They actually spoke to the judges. And, you know, I think that's been a factor that has has enabled the judges to make this decision. So it's a big legal step. 
it will be a long time again it will take time we don't know you know how this investigation is going to pan out but it is a significant legal step for for the rohingya and for you know justice and accountability as well and i'm wondering as always what are the connections between this and other cases take you know understanding that they are all separate the lawyers in this case are using the g word they're using genocide um, they're talking about trying to get senior military actually onto the stand if possible, you know, as part of the investigation. And they're saying that they want to get the evidence from Facebook as well. So are these, you know, it's the wrong question to ask, are they connected? Because you're going to say, no, they're not. But, but how, uh, you know, explore for us how you could actually see some linkages here. No, absolutely. I mean, there are linkages, you know, I, I think at the very basic level, it is linked to atrocities that have occurred in Myanmar, in Rakhine State. The additional layer of complexity now is that we've essentially got three judicial proceedings ongoing. So if we exclude Facebook, we've got the International Criminal Court, which is about individual responsibility. We've got the International Court of Justice, which is about state responsibility. We've got the UJ case, universal jurisdiction case in Argentina, which is an individual responsibility. And and then, of course, we've got the mechanism for Myanmar, which is also looking at crimes that are international crimes that have been committed after 2011, which also includes what's happening now in the context of the coup. So you've got these four legal proceedings um, that are all at slightly different stages, that all go at a slightly different pace, and that all actually have different sort of mandates and, and have, have different areas that are carved out that they all look at, there are definitely overlaps among some of them. So for instance, I would say the International Court of Justice, which is talking about genocide, but state responsibility for genocide, you've got an overlap now with the universal jurisdiction case, which is also talking about genocide. The International Criminal Court has an investigation now going forward, full steam ahead, which is linked to Bangladesh and linked to crimes through the territory of Bangladesh, so essentially deportation, persecution, other inhumane acts. But the chamber has also opened the door and, and it's sort of up to the prosecutor to see how he now frames his investigation and what, what is the, the remit of charges that he wants to bring eventually when, when this moves forward. So multiple legal proceedings, a lot of overlaps, points of intersection, um, but also fairly distinct proceedings as well. So it, it all makes for a very fascinating and and fairly exhausting time as well following all these proceedings and and you know how how they how they move forward it's it's um yeah it's complicated does the argentina case in a way put pressure also on the icc because it's now at a, a further stage they have moved to actually opening i guess a case so could we foresee that maybe there are findings already from an Argentine court by the time that the ICC prosecutor has to make a determination or does it kind of put uh, put the new prosecutor in a position where he will be feel more obliged to act because there are all these other cases ongoing? That's an interesting question. And, and honestly, it's going to be very speculative of me to speak to it, but I will. Um I would say it's really now a matter of timing as well. I don't see it as additional pressure. I mean, I do see it as an additional avenue of accountability. So if anything, 
possibly the prosecutor would feel a bit relieved as well that you've got another case, you know, another series of investigations or another judicial process that is moving forward also. So I would say maybe it takes some of the pressure off. But again, you know, it's, this, this is just purely my my personal perspective. And I do feel it's now going to be, be a matter of timing as well in terms of how things move forward. What are the mandates of these different proceedings? How they focus on particular types of evidence, particular aspects? Also, people, you know, who who is the focus or who's going to be the perpetrator that the ICC focuses on as opposed to this universal jurisdiction? So, again, all up in the air right now. And, and I think we really have to wait and see how, how these proceedings move forward. Yeah, for me, what's uh, interesting is, of course, there are so many different cases to follow. There's also, as Priya mentioned, what's actually happening right now in Myanmar. There was that hashtag going around, oh, what is happening in Myanmar, talking about different kinds of alleged crimes against humanity by the military authorities, uh, different alleged war crimes. So I asked Akila when I caught up with her how she saw the connection between this kind of range of cases about the past and this full year now of military crackdown. So much of what's going on with Myanmar, with the coup, is connected to impunity. You know, the military has for a very long time gotten away with what they've done. You know, and whether that's genocide against the Rohingya, whether that's crimes against humanity and war crimes committed against other ethnic group in the context of internal armed conflicts, whether that's the suppression of the population, you know, you have UN experts calling what's going on now in the country crimes against humanity. The military has always gotten away with it. And I think that even if we're talking about something where we're at the preliminary objections, even if we're talking about jurisdiction, it's incredibly important to see the military have to respond to their actions, to have a moment that says there are consequences for what you do and that you do not get to skate by. And so I think that while the February hearings may be procedural and there may be some of these other questions around representation that will crop up, I think the importance to accountability for the entire people of Myanmar, the hearings themselves are incredibly important in moving that forward because we don't really have anything else on those lines moving forward. We have, you know, we, we have some small seeds, but I think the ICJ is really an important piece in breaking the total impunity that the military has for too long gotten away with. So, Stephanie, are you going to be uh, present and monitoring the ICJ? Absolutely, I'm going to monitor the ICJ. I don't think we can be present because it's, again, a hybrid hearing where there's no audience allowed, so we'll have to follow it online. But I am probably also going to hang around the Peace Palace to see who is going in and out. Uh, so I'm I'm afraid I'm going to have to bring a thermos of coffee because I, I think I'm going to spend quite a few slightly colder mornings hanging out at the gates to, to kind of peer into blacked out limousines and see who shows up and then probably find out that whoever is the agent for Myanmar is probably doing it via video link. Okay, well, good luck with that. And uh, I'm sure to read your reports and uh, see you again soon. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net an independent site covering justice efforts for mass violence. 
music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.